Hello, welcome back to Back in My Play. This is episode number 26, but it is part two of what I, for some reason, titled Porting the Dream with Mike Micah. <laughs> and of course, we got Mike back on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I can't believe you're up to episode 26. This We're is insane. Flying. It's uh, it, it's nuts because I was looking at the calendar the other day. I was looking at the website because I just updated the website. And the first episode we did was like in June 20th or 26th or something like that. So it's almost been a year since I started doing this, which is uh, just shows I'm getting old because time's going really fast. <laughs> Uh, but we have a lot of cool stuff to talk about. Before we jump into that, I just want to give the audience a heads up that uh, if you're listening to this, send in questions as soon as possible for uh, Blake J. Harris, who is the author of Console Wars. I'm going to be interviewing him very soon. Uh, his book just came out today, and I'm already like six chapters into it. It is really good. Um, I can't wait for that book. Oh, it's great. It's it's like... you. It's weird because every book pretty much starts with either Atari or Nintendo. This book starts with Sega. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Which is a, a nice start. And uh, he seems to have done a, a ton of research, some really great interviews with it because there's lots of like really inside stories just in the first couple chapters of the book. Uh, with the audiobook, I got it on Audible and it's 20 hours long. So it is a, wow. uh, it is a uh, hefty uh, book. But so far, so good. It is... Uh, it is great. So if you haven't picked that up, and he'll be on soon. If if anything, it's worth the photos that are in it because he's got some pretty exclusive photos you just can't find anywhere else. And one of my favorites being um, Mr. Arakawa and Howard Lincoln go kart racing on carts <laughs> that are mocked up like Mario Kart. No way. <laughs> oh, I guess I... they had some party or something for a launch event, and it's like crazy to see them in in a Mario Kart. <laughs> it just it just. I, I've read, uh, I, th- I think it was Super Mario that I read, and I've, you know, you, you've seen lots of articles written about the, the early days of Nintendo with Donkey Kong and, uh, of course, like launching the, the NES in uh, the United States and just kind of how they they were kind of lucky. Um, oh, yeah. And, and they just kind of hit it at the right time and made some really good decisions. But uh, same thing with Sega of America. It seems like they just also got really lucky they hired the right people at the right time but there was lots of office politics that um i've never read anything about before so i'm just i'm kind of chopping at the bit to to get back i've been listening to it listening to it all day uh while doing stuff so it's been really good uh but mike we're here to talk about you <laughs> and talk to you because uh, we had a great response from the first episode that we did uh, just talking ab- about ports and just for people if you haven't checked that out first go back but again you're really like the perfect person to talk to about this because you did a lot of ports whether it be arcade ports uh, to the home to the PC and also you did some ports that I even find more interesting like going from the arcade to a portable and even some uh, collections and some emulation projects as well. So we're going to be getting more into that stuff today. Yeah. So I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. I, well, if you have not checked out Mike's stuff, uh, Mike, you really need a Wikipedia entry because you've worked on so many games and the best thing I can ever find is the page on Giant Bomb. Yeah, you know, the guys at Giant Bomb were – I was surprised they had stuff on there that I worked on because you just don't hear about it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know how they 
got all the information. Maybe they know people I know or something, but um, I kind of go there. I point people there where it's like, yeah, this is what I've kind of worked on before. <laughs> well, hopefully someone in the audience or someone out there is going to get together uh, a Wikipedia page, something that's uh, fully in-depth and uh, just uh, make it happen because, well, you'll hear some uh, hear a little more about these games today, but uh, let's start off by just as a refresher, let's just talk about ports and, and what they meant to video games in general. And this is a combination of a couple questions. I uh, Sorry, I did, was not able to attribute all these questions to people, but um, we had a question on NeoGAF actually about just the, the Sega Saturn and the Dreamcast and uh, the arcade ports that were on there and you know their effect on the home console industry or I guess uh, I'm sorry not home console but the arcade industry in the United States because that's something that's still very prevalent like there's club segas all over the place there's title game centers in Japan but in the United States if you see an arcade machine you're lucky it's either at a bar or maybe at a movie theater and it's like a golf game or it's big buck hunter um so so do you, do you think these two consoles and again it was sega uh did they have a huge effect just on just killing arcades altogether I, you know, it's easy to put the blame in different places, but to be really honest, they did. They, there was, when the Dreamcast particularly, I, I, I can go back to that, and the Saturn, but the Dreamcast in particular, was a point where the arcade experience, the thing that separated arcades from home really was you would go to the arcade and you could not experience that at home. There was no way you could afford or experience that in any way, shape, or form at home. But with the Dreamcast, they're almost verbatim. And it wasn't just like, here's this kind of game that's like Moon Patrol, now it's at home or whatever. You're talking about like Crazy Taxi, which uh, visually and 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 performance-wise and everything in the arcade was stellar and un- unmatched and incredible but then this magic box the dreamcast could give you that at home and i think that had a, a pretty profound effect and it was a it was a bizarre thing because the dreamcast was its own worst enemy mm-hmm. it killed off i wouldn't say dreamcast killed off arcades but it had a big impact on it and at the same time it didn't transition like create those arcade games for the home well enough to be a system that people could see as a competitor to the PS2 because the games on it were very arcadey. Mm-hmm. And so I think like arcades in general were already on a decline and everything like that because of, you know, PCs and everything that was kind of going on in games. But if there was ever a death knell, it's like the Dreamcast contributed quite a bit to that. Well, I, you mentioned just having the the novelty of seeing cool arcade machines and I remember on the Dreamcast like it had so many peripherals. Like you had you didn't have the official light gun in the United States. For some reason, uh, Sega didn't want to bring that over. I think it was just for uh, because of Columbine and stuff like that. But, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, and they also had Dance Dance Revolution was big on that console. They had fishing controllers. Uh, they had, of course, the maracas. Even if you were that hardcore and you wanted to play Sabade Amigo in an arcade, uh, you could even bring that home. So they kind of gave you no reason to step into an arcade because it was all on the Dreamcast. If you really wanted to play that stuff, you could do it for 200 bucks. Exactly. And there was, yeah, there was the, it was almost better at home to be honest, because Mm -hmm. uh, dance dance revolution for a lot of people, it's like, they didn't want to do that in public, but Hey, I can bring it home and I get really good at it. And uh, I don't feel ashamed of myself in front of people. The, uh, the next thing I wanted to hit on is, uh, again, with with you having the experience of of doing a lot of ports, uh, I, I was curious to see what is the the workflow, or what's the process that you have to go through as a developer to decide what you know what concessions am I going to make to this game? I know 
uh, in an earlier episode, we talked about bringing NFL Blitz to the Game Boy, and that is uh, a game that was big in arcades, but you're shrinking it down, not literally, but I mean, well, literally uh, yeah. to a handheld. Um, so, in a, for that example, or just any example that you want to use, how do you decide? Like, this is what we're going to have to cut, and these are con- these are the concessions we're going to need to make, and what do we have to make sure that we keep in this game to to keep its identity? I guess. Yeah, it's it really comes down to when we're working on Game Boy. That's such a far cry from an arcade game or whatever at the time, like NFL Blitz was this nice 3D action game that had these incredible visuals and uh, it's really fast. And then how do I bring that down to a Z80 that's running at like two to four megahertz and <laughs> trying to get it to like replicate that? That that process is pretty challenging because you what we always do and what I've always done in my career is uh, when these games come up is we sit in a room and we say, what's the hardware that the that this is running on. So NFL Blitz is running on this kind of PC sort of architecture and Power VR, I believe, and all this stuff. Uh, if I th- or it was Open G, Open, or it's 3DFX maybe. And this stuff was all over here. And then here's the lowly Game Boy, and we have this sort of thing. When it comes to that kind of port, you pretty much throw out any sense of taking any code from the one system and bring it over the other because they're mm-hmm. so diverse. And so it, it comes down to what is it about NFL Blitz that people like? Is it um, is it the true football simulation? Is it just the ability to run the ball and smash into people and all that stuff? So um, we we would take that approach with Game Boy games. But then later games, when there's some possibility of them being very uh, similar in architecture, um, there's there's something else you can do. And we were working with Jack Specific on a series of joysticks. The guys who would make like the, the Pac-Man joystick, mm-hmm. and it has like Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man stuff built in. We're working on several games that didn't even come out from, from that group, because uh, I think for a while, when those joysticks were selling really well, they were just lined up a whole bunch of um, options to just slowly roll them out. And one of them was a Williams collection that had Joust, Robotron, and Sinistar on it. And I think the one, the other one that we worked on was uh, NHL '94, and um, that's like Genesis brought over to these really cheap chipsets, these uh, Sun Plus chips that were like, I think fifty cents, and that's that's what would drive these games like as a whole. Instead of a Genesis that was like a hundred dollars in a day plus or whatever, <laughs> now you have this fifty cent chip that can kind of do it. But it's it's display technology and stuff while similar was really crappy. And so you had to find ways to make that game perform on that chip. So something that's running at like a quarter of the processing power and all that stuff and the display would drop graphics and stuff. You'd try to come up with these workarounds. But you could graph it over. Like you could see how the sprites would would translate. You could see how um, things you could cut out of the the main loop of the game that were unnecessary to give you the performance you needed to get the game running speed. So we would we kind of like map out what each chipset offered that was similar and the things that weren't similar, we would rewrite. So mm-hmm. in many cases, like on the Genesis, when it's going on the screen, there's all these like interlaced tricks or not interlaced tricks, but like um, horizontal blank uh, interrupt tricks you could do where you're changing the palette as you're going down the screen and all that stuff. For us, we would be like, okay, well, we can't do that the way the Genesis does it. We'll just rewrite it so that um, since we have more color, we'll just put those colors into the graphics and, and that sort of thing. So you make all these concessions as you go, but Going back to the Game Boy side, it really came down to finding the five top or a few things at the top that are the most important things about the game and just recreating it. Uh, for Blitz, I think I failed on Blitz because um, I, I didn't have a good way to bring that sort of action, that sort of visceral tackling touchdown sort of system uh, to the Game Boy, particularly in a game that had to be backwards compatible with the black and white Game Boy. Um, so... 
that was all kind of crazy. But then there's the other notion, the um, kind of like make it up as you go along observational port. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is stuff what the Atari guys would do in the old days. And I did this a little bit with um, Clax. Even though I had source code, uh, it was better that I was just looking at the game for like the, the sense of flow and speed and stuff like that because I couldn't just bring the code over. This observational port system was uh, successful for – it's not done anymore, but it was successful for a while because like, there were games like Bubble Bobble on the Commodore 64, which is almost arcade perfect. It's better than some of the actual ports because the programmer was sitting next to an arcade machine and was just looking at the game and trying to mimic what was there, and he was really good at his craft. And um, So ports like that and um, things like Operation Wolf that was on the Commodore Amiga mm-hmm. and a lot of the Genesis ports, like Marble Madness on Genesis, a lot of the stuff... Um, although that one probably had some source code crossover, this observational porting was really impressive. The Atari 2600, the like Jungle Hunt and um, Moon Patrol, those were observational ports because there's just no way you were going to actually be able to bring any of the code from the arcade hardware over to an Atari 2600 or anything like that. So that, if I'm ranking these things, I think observational ports are the most impressive. And then you have these like semi ports where. You're you're more or less like taking some source code and then recreating some aspects of it. That's kind of the second tier. And then there's the true port, which is um, taking source code, retargeting it to a new platform. Because a lot of platforms by Genesis onward, like Super Nintendo Genesis, and then going into PlayStation, every started like consolidating around C. And so you could take source code from those systems and bring them to a new platform and you know fill in the gaps here and there. But it would generally recompile, and then you've got to fix up stuff. Um, there's those three kind of port scenarios, and there's pure emulation, which I, it's hard to put into porting, but pure emulation is almost the easiest because it's just a, a thing you keep working at, and then one day it just suddenly, like 15 minutes of effort, suddenly you have the game up and running, and then the rest of it's just getting the nuances sorted out. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like those four kind of tiers to it that uh, are, are the approach that we end up taking. We, we say, what category does this go into? We have a project right now that just came through the door last week, and I haven't seen one of these in a while, which is a it's a collection. And they came to us because they knew we had experience in this and that I've I've done it before. And so um it's kind of exciting because I'm looking at it going like, okay, they're telling us we have source code for all these things. And I'm like, honestly, emulation is gonna be cheaper and faster and more accurate. Uh, why don't we do this? Because uh a similar product that's out there right now that just came out recently, um, failed to put in like the proper scaling of the screens mm-hmm. and uh putting in CRT masking and all these cool filters and stuff. So this is an opportunity to kind of go out there and show like for PS4 and for Xbox One, you can do all this stuff and it's going to look even better now than it has on previous generations. So when, when I always thought of like NFL Blitz, it was, you know, a big part of it, obviously the, the action, like the over-the-topness, but uh, also I think it was still at the time Mark Trammell who was doing the, the announcing um, yep. and just like all the crazy stuff. But you kind of had no roam or even i mean there was limited ability on the the game boy color to do some voice right but it was just more of a space issue it was a space issue and then because we're supporting game boy black and white it was very hard Ah, to it was hard to put in voice because we'd have to blank out the screen or keep the screen really solid nothing going on to get the voice to sound decent enough so that really crippled us like if we could have just done game boy color out of the gate i would have felt a lot better better about the game because we tried to capture tackles as video and play those back in these little squares in the center of the screen when you did a tackle because these little sprites we had just you could it just didn't feel good when I mean, they, they looked like they tackled but it was mm-hmm. just a mess of pixels uh so we were like cut to a video of the tackle yeah and we captured a whole bunch of tackles from nfl blitz and tried to quantize those into some video it was just it was a mess 
But um, it was better than double dribble, like those like <laughs> three screenshots that would be your animation for the dunk. <laughs> exactly. We we felt like we at least trumped double dribble. <laughs> Perfect. That's that's a good goal to shoot for because double dribble still a good game. I'll still play I love some double that dribble. Game. That and game, it, like at the end of the day, double dribble is a better game than the port I did of NFL Blitz by a long shot. <laughs> and, and it's also a good example of digitized voice. I'm like. Rrr, rrr, rrr. <laughs> yep, you knew what it meant. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, I guess I did. Um, <laughs> so this is all really interesting because it, it makes me think that game developers should just uh, – it, it just seems like it's almost better now because, if, well, there's fewer constraints on the hardware and stuff like that. But a, a lot of these limitations seem to be driven by you know budget and money – of what the the publisher is going to want to do because like you said i mean you said this in the past like if i was just able to say all right this is only going to work in the game boy color we don't have to worry about it working on the original game boy uh then we're going to be good to go we have uh, much more uh, capabilities in terms of what we can do on the game uh and it seems like that's even the it's like even a case today with the playstation vita where you know some companies use a smaller cart, so they have to compress the um, the graphics and the unfortunately the audio in some games. It's still happening today. It's crazy. I just wish yep. developers could just say, actually, how about let's not worry about money. Let's just make a great product, and if we give <laughs> that to the people, we don't. You know, we have a much better shot than giving them you know a product with limitations based on just the you know the cart size and stuff like that. It's true. That's the probably number one thing that gets in the way of most of these efforts is mm. the budget. Mm. They there's more often than not when we were at our peak of doing emulation and collections, uh, those games were making tons of money. They were saving some companies quarters, mm-hmm. and we were told that, and it was just like, well, that's great. Let's do more. But they would use those. They would literally exploit their back catalog in yeah. order to fund their bigger efforts. And so it was very challenging. They would they would definitely greenlight one, but they wanted to use all that money for their AAA game they're working on over here or whatever. And so you would just get the same budget because they wanted you to repeat that success. Um, but then when you decided, when you wised up a bit, and you're like, look, you know, we can keep doing this, but we're burning ourselves out mm-hmm. trying to deliver this thing, and we don't don't even get a piece of all this action like you guys do um let's just let's blow this out a little bit more so that we can you know make this more successful and let's talk about you know like a better royalty on the back end because we're we're doing all this stuff and you're making all this money like let's if you don't want to pay more give us more on the back end so that we can like you can say we'll give you a royalty of x uh because we knew these things were gonna be successful but they wouldn't want to do that and instead they would go to like find a team uh, outsourced to a like a team somewhere around the world who's like really cheap, who doesn't have the experience, but mm-hmm. they're coming in saying what they want to hear. Like we can do what they did, super cheap. And so we'd lose, we start losing work in the mid, like I'd say around two thousand one, two thousand two. It was like we started to see our work get uh, outsourced to other places with inexperienced teams, and it was it was kind of depressing because you would see these products come out that were really shoddy efforts. Um, and we'd learned so much over the years to get those to build a, like a product that we felt comfortable with, and uh, and and building in that accuracy. Like a lot of our collections, we with the budget so low, we painstakingly added features and spent and put more money into it than we made, and all that stuff. And it was just heartbreaking to see that go elsewhere, and then the efforts not, not bear the same fruit. And it was 
we'd see publishers that we were working with get frustrated because the sales weren't there. And it, the reality is people were wise to that. Like if the mm-hmm. game wasn't very good or the port was really bad, they weren't into it. And the, the reviews and the sales would reflect it. And so we had this weird rebound for a little while. It was like a boomerang. Like everything went away. And then two years later, it all came back. And then mm-hmm. it would boomerang away. And then two years later, it all come back. And we're starting to see that right now. All, this, all these collections and all these efforts that we had done in the past and these kind of products we'd done are coming back. We're getting calls now for people who want to do more of it. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, and this is kind of the perfect time to put it in, is I, I still uh, I remember back to uh, Ethan Einhorn was I think he was doing some PR for Sega at the time when Sonic's Ultimate Genesis Collection was was coming out, yep. and uh, I think he was on Retronauts talking about. Or they were asking about, and if you go to Japan, you, you'll see this sometimes. You'll see these Sega Ages collection where it will just be one disc, and it will focus on one game. Like it will focus on, uh, you know, just Fantasy Star, or maybe might be Fantasy Star, like one, two, three, and four. And it is a a budget for a game that is focused on one or these four games to get them uh, perfect and to make sure that uh, they are like it's a package made for fans. That's something there's a market in Japan for that. Do you think there's a market for that in the United States? Because every time a collection has come out, it's been, you know, 30 games or something like that, or 20 games. You see these Midway collections, Atari collections. Uh, Do do you even think there's a a market for for people to spend like $50 just for four Fantasy Star games and stuff like that? I. I do. I've been pitching this for a long time, and way back, some of those earlier collections we we had uh, produced were originally meant to be single or like a genre or like a specific skew of a game uh, series focus. Uh, I used to buy all those Sega Ages discs, and I would mm-hmm. also, I also bought like the simple 2000 series games, all these things mm-hmm. that were like you know very simple efforts, but like um. I, you have to do a lot more than just provide the games. Like we had done the Fantasy Star Collection for GBA. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that one, um, and that was based off of that Sega Ages collection uh, in theory, like the, the the approach. And we put that together, and that did really well. It uh, we even included the original Sega Master System uh, emulation of the first Fantasy Star with the extra FM um, synth support and uh, or emulation for it. And um, that that product. That was proof to me that it, it it worked because Fantasy Star is not the biggest fan as much as like the fans of it love it and everything else. It's not the biggest fan. It doesn't go up against Zelda or anything like that, but mm-hmm. it did really good numbers. It competed with the collections that we would put out, like the Capcom collection and stuff. So, in pure volume, it was very successful, and then in quality, it was I felt it was very successful, and I thought that would pave the way for for more of these things. And when we're working with Ethan and Sega, Ethan, by the way, good friend of mine, fantastic guy. If anybody out there has worked really hard to get a company like Sega to produce back catalog titles and and re- bring these things back, it's been Ethan. He's mm. he's been trying so hard over there for the longest time, and like they listen to him and everything, but he it's hard to make a business case with them. But he he and I worked together on a lot of stuff for a long time, and we did the Sega Vintage games, which were downloadable single games. And those, I, if I, the, the few that I worked on before I had left Backbone for a little while, um, they they sold incredibly well, and I mm. think they did well enough for Sega to they did a whole series of those. And um, so I think that was all proof right there that that would work. But you have to do a few more things with these right now because I mean. 
this podcast, uh, other podcasts, books, and all these things. People are really, it's like film now. People are interested in the process of the game's development, mm-hmm. the backstory, the game, all the side effects from like merchandising and stuff. When you put out a, a, say we pick one game like, uh, I'm just randomly picking because we just talked about it a moment ago, like Bubble Bobble, mm-hmm. you should produce like the Criterion director's cut version of this game. Here's the game. Here's all the different versions of the game. Talk about and present what the different versions mean. Um, and then give some history to the game and any documentation you have on the game from like video and release video and uh, launch party stuff and everything like that. All these things and then interviews with the developers, stuff that we, we tried to do on a lot of our old collections. I think if you did that with a more uh, meaning like a, a more impactful and meaningful approach to it. Um, spend more money on that. That's what people want to see. You see it with Double Fine right now. They have uh, Broken Age and all that, all the documentary footage and stuff that's going on during the production of the yeah. game that's packaged with it. That's such a that's such a value add. And people who love games love that stuff and they will invest in that. So when you when you ask for forty dollars or thirty dollars for one of these games, you know you're getting all that with it. Like suddenly the price of a Blu-ray plus the price of the game plus uh, the book you would have bought about it, uh, that that's worth the thirty bucks. Man, I I wish I lived in that world. Because <laughs> Me too. Because I, I even I, I when I go to Japan and these these uh, the Sega ages like now on PS2 they are pretty expensive. I mean, if you can find a used copy, you're still yeah. going to spend like thirty, forty, fifty bucks. But um, I was really close to to picking up the the outrun. I don't even own a Japanese PS2, but um, getting things just to just to own it, just to like say, all right, man, I own this perfect version of this game plus all the cool things that, uh, you know, they, they did in that collection. And you guys did some of that stuff with Sonic's Ultimate Genesis collection. You talked about it last time where, you know, you, you kind of had to, to fight to get the, you know, the budgeting to, to go out to Japan and do these interviews. Yep. But I think it was a huge, for, I mean, for me as someone that's like really into this stuff, that was a huge value add for that game, just being able to see uh, interviews from the creators of these games and to hear their stories. It's great. Um we need some more of this stuff. I hope. I hope. Well, I need- you know, there, did you see that Dreamcast um, collection that came with the book uh, that had like Afterburner, Outrun, and Space Harrier in it? And it was a published book in Japan. No. Why so there's this book. It's I think it's called Dreamcast Ages or whatever, but it's a uh, it's a uh, volume one. Okay. And it's the Yu Suzuki. I think it's the Yu Suzuki uh, focused one, volume one. And you open up, and it's this hardcover with all these beautiful pages of the development of the game and all the production concept work. And then in the back is a Dreamcast disc. And it has the perfectly emulated Outrun and Space Harrier and I forgot the other what? one on there. And it's it's mind-boggling. I, I managed to get one of those. I saw somebody with that like years ago and I just tracked it down. I don't even remember what I paid. It, it, I didn't care what I was going to pay for it. And uh, it's phenomenal. And I, I think like all these classic games should be treated like that. Mm. Yeah, I t- preaching to the choir. Like this is, <laughs> it's, it's why I I have to watch myself when I go to Japan because I I, I want to get deep into this stuff. And even uh, with with Sega, just going off them, they they did some of the stuff for the the Sega Saturn as well. Or no, it was Outrun uh, for the for the Sega Saturn that they did that uh, Sega Ages collection for. But um, that's that stuff. I, I mean, I even I import stuff from Japan for my buddy in Japan. Just even if it's CD soundtracks, they do uh, yep. awesome. Like I just got the NES, uh, or the sorry, the the Famicom remix book that they put out, which is like the Nintendo Player's Guide. They practically re-released that thing in Japan, but 
I guess there isn't enough market for that over here, but um, I'm going to need to continue learning Japanese to be able to. <laughs> well, there's that. the. Did you ever see the All About Namco books? When we're talking about ports, the, the thing that's interesting about this stuff is also having the source materials, and it's yeah. a challenge to get that stuff. But there were the, there's a series of books called All About Namco, Volume 1, 2, 3, and I think it went on beyond that. And I had run across it at a Japanese bookstore in Chicago uh, one year, like way back in like the mid-'90s or whatever. And um, a friend of mine purchased them. They're pretty expensive, but he, he purchased them. And inside these books, they had the sheet music to Galaga and their arcade games. They had the graph paper scans of uh, the characters in the game, so like Pac-Man oh, and Galaga so cool. ships. And and then they had like the little flight patterns as they drew them out in the design documents and stuff for Galaga and mm-hmm. things like that. That kind of stuff. Imagine that plugged in with the games and packaged up and delivered, whether it's digital or in a package. Like I think. I think there's a market for that because it, you think about who buys Blu-rays now and yeah. who buys some of these things. There, there's enough of those people in the game space to, to justify it, I think. Yeah, I, I hope I hope we continue to get some of this stuff. There's uh, one thing uh, worth mentioning. the uh, With Skyward Sword, a, a Zelda um, book came out, and they brought that over and translated it. And they had some of those, that, that same kind of idea, like documents from uh, Miyamoto's sketches of the original Legend of Zelda, and that's the kind of stuff that I just geek out for. It's um, yeah. it's really really cool, and it's great to own this stuff. Where um, you know it's awesome to buy like a five dollar virtual console game, but I'd rather spend thirty dollars and get the Legend of Zelda on a disc and have like a bunch of interviews and just have like these behind the scenes uh, you know pieces on. I. I will give them my money. I'll give them access to my bank account. Just make it happen. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is what we do, right, with Kickstarter. Yeah, A lot I of know. These, all these classic revisits that are showing up on there are remakes and all stuff. We're dropping the money because we're getting a T-shirt. We're getting a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're getting an art book. We're getting all these things. And you're, like, looking at the soundtrack and all stuff. And it's like, I'm thinking, like, this is the package I want. This is the, ex- yeah. this is the collector's edition I'm looking for. Even to, to go back to the Vita, like, they, there's companies like Atlas uh, that, that – can make money off of bringing games over from Japan on the PlayStation Vita, not sell a ton of copies, but they have these great like $60, like the Ease $60 yeah. uh, collector's edition where they put in like a cloth map. They give you um, a three <laughs> CD soundtrack and you're talking about 20 extra dollars for all that stuff. There's, I mean, they're, they're selling out of that stuff. It's it's making them money, and they're still bringing tons of stuff over to a console that's not doing great, although I do own four, so I'm doing my part. Uh, get that stuff out here, and people are at least willing to uh, to buy that stuff. It's Man, I can just talk about this stuff forever. And Ethan, <laughs> you're right. Ethan, every time he's on like a podcast, like uh, he was on A4 once, and he was on Retronauts, like, uh, he is super enthusiastic about all things Sega. And he was – I think he was in part uh, – able to bring Hatsune Miku, not my type of game, but he was able to even get that uh, translated and brought over to uh, the United States on the PlayStation via the latest one. Uh, And again, it seems like it made them enough money to say, all right, we can continue to do stuff like this going forward. Well, you know, a lot of people don't realize like Ethan's been um, behind the scenes. He's been doing some incredible things and he's Mm -hmm. got like three or four pitches he's been revisiting with Sega management over the years that are amazing. And one of these days they're going to get greenlit and it's going to, these are the kind of things that's going to make this audience very excited because it comes from a place where we all come from and it celebrates games and 
uh, one of I, I can't even talk about. It. I wish I could, but like this one pitch that I really wish, whether he works with us or somebody on it, happens because it's just uh, a, a game fan's dream. It's about celebrating video games, mm-hmm. and he's got these things there, and it's just hard to sell this stuff because just like these packages we talk about, where it's, it wouldn't it be amazing if. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of obstacles to getting those things out there because you just can't model that very effectively as far as a business uh, model goes because yeah, it's yeah. sort of unprecedented and there's a little bit of risk because there's been a lot of history with working with groups that have brought these games over on the cheap and it just doesn't make money so it's then determined that these games don't make money anymore and then it takes one person to do a good job on something and suddenly everybody wants to do it again and that cycle happens again but Ethan's on the forefront of that and um, if anybody's going to make that happen over at Sega I can't wait to see him get these things off the ground absolutely Um, let's continue and uh, it is a very healthy uh, system right now out there with the Xbox 360 and PS3 still doing great they're still selling really well and we obviously have uh, the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One. Xbox One today, like as we record, is now offering a $400 version as well. So even more people are going to be able to jump in. Uh, I guess that was their slogan for 360, but we can use it right here. Uh, jump into uh, you know owning new consoles. So I wanted to ask you, uh, there's always going to be slots open for uh, bringing back games. Uh, so are there any games that you that you want to bring back to current-gen consoles? If I said, hey, Mike, I, I'm going to give you a budget of unlimited money. You can bring back any <laughs> franchise. Don't worry. I know everyone at all the major publishers. They're cool with it. Uh, what would you want to bring back? You're, you're asking a guy who has a list that's like 500 <laughs> titles long. And to distill that down, it's really challenging. But there, there are a few that come to mind all the time when I when I think of this. And there, some of them are a little oddball and that sort of thing. But there's also some that are that you would expect. Like there's top line ones that I would love to bring back, and that's like that go back a little probably too far for some people. But like Pitfall, I think has a chance at having a really nice resurgence with the way like how how indie games right now have kind of reset people's um, expectations for gaming and how uh, core mechanics can rule. Uh, I think Pitfall would be great, and Hero would be awesome for that. Hero is a, a game that I think was really um, overlooked in the back catalog of Activision Classics. It's it's the game, game about the guy with the, the helicopter jet pack or helicopter pack mm-hmm. that goes down into mines to rescue people. Great gameplay. It was phenomenal for twenty six hundred, and I think that mechanic and stuff has so like, a lot of legs for for a next gen console and what you could do with it. But then there's the the other games that are closer and more dear to my heart that people probably find controversial. Uh, but I would I would make every effort to do if there was no if money wasn't an obstacle and I had to like <laughs> put some of that money into marketing to convince people it was worth it. Uh, things like uh, High Ten Bomberman is a legendary game in my mind because it was a one-of-a-kind game developed by Hudson Soft that was a 10-player Bomberman for to demonstrate that they could uh, deliver a game on an HD TV. And so they had 10 players playing all at once. And uh, iDarb, in many respects, mm. uh, was a lot to that, that game, uh, subconsciously at least, because we were trying to get as many players as possible onto one console. And in my mind all the time when we were trying to do that, I kept thinking of High 10 Bomberman. How many are you up to? Are you up to eight people playing iDarb right now? We are up to eight playing our dub right now, and we actually have found a way to allow people potentially, and we're probably going to put it in anyways, to uh, use their iPhones or Android <laughs> devices or Windows phones to play as other players that play the role of goalie. So 
we could actually have 10 people playing. And the way you log into it is pretty easy. It's just like, here's the startup screen. Here's all the eight players logging in. Mm-hmm. You turn on your smart glass device, which is any of those phones, mm. and you just you log in too. And then suddenly this phone device is a goalie and this phone device is a goalie. And it plays like a paddle, like you're just moving your finger up and down on your phone and you're you're a goalie in front of the goal. So we might be 10 players by the time we ship this thing. When is this um, coming out? I need to play this game. You gotta... I know. So you guess uh, we've, we've actually... This, since GDC and since we've talked about it on the show, a lot of things have been happening. And it's, it's got... Thanks to everybody who listens uh, to the show, who wrote Microsoft and all these people <laughs> and tweeted about the game and the people who were at GDC and everything tweeted about it. It's, it's turned into this really weird... Cinderella story of of a game because now the demand has been incredible. We've uh, every day we've we've been getting um, pinged from journalists and publishers. People and keep knocking down your website when they're they creating do, characters. It's like uh, you know I, I, half the credit is we we really wrote it poorly, but the other half <laughs> is a lot of people who are coming in and trying to create characters and all mm-hmm. stuff. And when there's we know something's wrong when there's not many characters showing up because the website's down or whatever, but. <laughs> It's it's been going so well that now for E3, hopefully we, we're getting things in order right now, but I think we're going to have a big splash at E3, and there's a lot of new things that have happened now in the game, and mm-hmm. we really want to get the game out sooner rather than later. Uh, so like we, we keep saying fall and early fall, but we're, we're going to try to shoot for probably late summer on wow. the game, and we've, we're trying to determine what does that mean to the game. Like A lot of people just want it now, mm-hmm. and they've played it, and they think it's ready to go. And then there's other people who really like... The, the, the biggest thing that comes in the middle of this is online multiplayer because online multiplayer isn't necessarily hard. It just takes a lot of time to test it. Mm-hmm. And when we look at games like uh, Nidhogg and all these things that are out there, um, when the multiplayer doesn't work, you get this really bad rap for not having it fully fleshed out. So we're cognizant of that. So there's a lot of requests to have it online, but what if we do like a pre-early uh, access version of the game without online to give us time to... Get the online sorted out. It's a game that we continue. We, we plan to continue updating after it launches. So it's not a question of like it's this one thing that's done and we're we're done with the game. It's a game that we hope will live and continue to grow, and we we expect to do that for at least six months after its launch. Mm-hmm. So part of that might be multiplayer comes in later on stuff. We're just having all those conversations right now, but uh, the the interest is so high and we're so ecstatic about it, and it's been. It's made it challenging for me to, to get on the show with you today because of all the stuff that's been going on, uh, but it's 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 exciting. That's awesome. Well, uh, we'll continue to uh, keep the audience updated, but uh, hopefully we'll get to see some cool new video at E3 with uh, all the new uh, features that have been implemented, and um, it's just a, a unique, like one-of-a-kind game. The way that you guys have put this together and taken feedback from the audience, it's just... I hope other companies are taking notes and, you know, thinking about how they can, you know, copy this kind of idea in the future. You know, the number of times I've heard from people who've written to us about the game and said they heard about it on back, back in my play. Right. <laughs> it's it's awesome. So I, this, I feel like the game's grown up with this show as we've kind of <laughs> gone. So it's – and to what you just said there, we've actually – thanks to this game, we've got people calling us uh, – Big big publishers we worked with in the past who are like we want to do what you did with iDarb mm. with some of our games that we've done or with original works and have a completely open development. Yeah. Um, so it's already, if if anything, already people are more open to this, and that's that's something you just don't you haven't seen very often with a bigger publisher. Well, hopefully, GDC is going to be it's I guess like ten months away now. Uh, yep. Be a great topic. 
for uh, I, yeah, you, you know what? Now, it originally started as a topic that I was going to say, this is why you don't do crowd-designed games, because <laughs> it's terrible. But now the topic will probably be like, this is the best thing ever, and yeah. here's why. Uh, you, you also put on there, to, to go back to the topic we were, we oh, were yeah, talking yeah. about, um, I need to also, you, you mentioned in the document, Turok Rage Wars. Tell me, yes. <laughs> okay, what, what did, you, did you work on the original? No, I didn't. You know what? So this is the controversial one. This is the one. <laughs> every time I'm in a circle of friends or a trade show or whatever, we talk about the games we want to remake or games we'd love to play again or something like that. I bring up Turok Rage Wars and it, literally everybody just pounces on me as if like I'm crazy. But I always put it to people like, have you actually played it? Because they think they've played it, but they're thinking of Turok 2 Seeds of Evil or they're thinking of Turok 3. Turok Rage Wars was an N64 game that is multiplayer only. So mm-hmm. it's it's not a single player game. They have bots or whatever, but it was literally the multiplayer mode of like Turok 2 that they wanted put into a cartridge and it used the the memory pack to give you a high res graphics so it actually when you have that memory pack the game's that much better and it's four player split screen and it has the kind of um, feature set you you would see in like GoldenEye with a lot of original stuff. And so it's like this middle ground game that has like the feel and look and fun and flexibility of like Halo multiplayer on an N64. And it was a little ahead of its time. But nobody remembers it and everybody confuses it for the other Turok games because why not? There's too many Turok games on the N64. So it's a game that if, I wish if people Listen, if you haven't played it, it's worth playing. I don't want you to go out and track it down and spend $90 and then send me an email like, I hate this thing, what was wrong with you? But the balance, the play, the, the mechanics, the, the weapons are incredible. You had this uh, auto-sentry gun that you could throw on the ground or on a ceiling or mm-hmm. on a wall, and it would target anybody that's not you. You could also, one of the best things about it is you could actually throw it onto a person. It would stick to them <laughs> and just shoot them in the face until they died. Like That, that kind of stuff is great. They had the cerebral bore, which is, uh, yes. was, uh, I don't know if you remember, the phantasm of ball. Cor- oh, so. The- I remember the cerebral, like the. I remember the weapon. Yeah, so the cerebral bore is based off of the phantasm ball in the movie Phantasm that had like fly at you and stick into your skull and then grind a hole in your skull and blow your brains out with like a vacuum kind of thing. So if you were the player running around, you see this, you see it like darting around coming at your face and then it like latches on and you see your brains pouring out. It was just these really fun, stupid weapons they had the emaciator which would make you like emaciate and you until you died and then you had the inflator that make you pop mm-hmm. and so you had like a dig dug weapon in this multiplayer game it was it was great so that game the 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 balance of that game and the, the mechanics of the game is something i would love to bring to a modern console because it's kind of that fun of golden eye mixed with the flow the flow and the crazy weapons of like later things like halo and stuff so i would love to bring that game back but i think everybody would think i'm crazy and that if i have a hard enough time bringing back a game collection i can only imagine going to somebody and going like i want to bring back turok multiplayer only who even owns turok now Disney, I think, owns really? it. Really? think. Yeah, in a weird turn of events, I think Disney owns it. Because um, I don't even think Acclaim put out the last one on 360 and PS3. No, <laughs> no. It's, it's, it's traded hands so much. And I could be wrong on the Disney thing, but that, I, I think Disney does. If you want to check out the game, it goes for like $6 on eBay. So you're not going to really break, break the bank. Yeah, Just make sure break- you got that RAM cart. Uh, yeah, that, that, that makes or breaks it because the game is too slow and terrible if you don't have the mem pack. 
I, I remember renting this game because uh, specifically specifically because I got that expansion pack and I knew that you know only a, a few games used it and the thing that blew me away more than anything is I remember playing Turok and Turok Two and then I went to this and there was no fog <laughs> and I was yeah the fog I was went like, away. all right they fixed it all right this is <laughs> this is fun and you don't really have games today that have crazy over the top weapons like you did with you know Turok Two or even like perfect dark and yeah. i remember time splitters too having crazy guns as well oh i love time splitters and of course we love time splitters because it's the same team that made perfect dark and yeah. goldeneye but um great phenomenal games and the weapons in those games you just don't see that anymore i keep getting i've somehow i became a part of a facebook group that is trying to get like a hundred thousand signatures to bring back time splitters or to do uh like a remake of uh, future perfect and Again, if anyone wants to get in my good graces at E3, that is a game to announce. Uh, because yeah, seriously, Time Splitters is just one of my favorite series. Two and three were uh, fantastic games, and I got arrested uh, when I after I bought Time Splitters two uh, because I was speeding on the way home without having my full driver's license. So I got pulled over, and since they didn't think I had a license, I wasn't in the database. I got handcuffed in front of my high school. Uh, and thankfully, <laughs> they called my parents in time to not have to take me down to the station. So thank you, Time Splitters, too. That was the first time and only time <laughs> that I had handcuffs put on me. So, Well, it's you. good that it was Time Splitters that put you through that experience <laughs> because it's like it's still a happy thing that could balance out the, the negative. <laughs> totally. It was a case of I, we, I was with two other buddies. I just bought Time Splitters at Best Buy. I was driving home as fast as possible because I'm like, I want to play Time Splitters. It was it was great, and I remember <laughs> it just it had awesome multiplayer from the review. So, uh, yeah, that's what it happens. Would have been awful if that was because of Bobcat or Bubsy the Bobcat. <laughs> You'd be like, God, <laughs> yeah, I just got this new copy of Superman '64. I can't wait. I love the franchise. Yeah, rushing home. <laughs> oh man, do not bring that back. talk a little bit about emulation because uh, again working on sonic's ultimate genesis collection uh emulation was a major part of that uh and you were stuck with the task of having to emulate a whole console because you're not just bringing one game over where you can kind of adjust uh, uh for that one game but you brought i think it was 30 games right that was in sonic's ultimate genesis collection that you had to you know, fine tune the emulator for. So what, what was that project like and and what kind of issues did you run into with that? Well, it's, um, on one hand, it's the best way to go because when you do an arcade collection, every arcade game has a very unique motherboard and nuances to, even though it looks like they have the same hardware, they, they're assembled very different. Um, but when you do something like the Genesis, it's actually a lot easier because your emulation generally will work for everything. And the games, they all just start working. 
Um, but then there are games like, um, I don't remember if we put these on there, like Gunstar Heroes, I think was on there, right? Um, that I believe it was. We've done that one before. And Gunstar mm-hmm. Heroes is a game that uses every trick in the book and every trick that was never in the book to give you the visuals and the, the, the kind of like effects that they did in the game. That kind of game breaks your emulator typically right out of the box. And so you, you go and you probably start, I'd say like with a collection like that, we started with Gunstar Heroes and other games that were just the craziest hardware uh, freak shows. And when you do that game first, pretty much every other game works. There's nothing else that could like break it like those games. So that ends up being pretty much uh, uh, an easier type of uh, collection to do. But then we end up taking that time that we saved doing that and put it into the hidden games that we put on there. So we had mm-hmm. some arcade games emulated. If I, We did a couple of those Sega collections, but I think ultimately um, Altered Beast, the arcade game, was also on one of those. Um, we also had uh, Zaxxon and yes, Congo right. Bongo yep. and those, those games. And so because it was uh, Genesis and a majority of the games were that same emulator, we were able to put effort into those other things. And it was really good that Sega was uh, on board for that too because normally they're not. Uh, a publisher is just kind of like, just do what we ask and that's it. Don't put any extras. But that one turned out really well. I'm probably most proud of that and the uh, first Capcom collection that we had done because we were able to do those kind of things. I, I have my copy of Sonic's Ultimate Genesis collection right here uh, for reference because, uh, again, I mentioned it on the show, but you can get this game for like $20 on Amazon and you can get all these awesome Sega games. And it's what I've been using for a couple of the episodes. It's worth it just for Streets of Rage 2. Yeah, um, it is. And that's a game like here's a, here's another it's thing. 40 classic titles. 40, 40 games are on this, not 30. 40 games, that's 20 the, bucks. Yeah. Uh, this isn't fair. 50 cents a game, right? Is that what it's <laughs> Yeah, it's uh... But the, the other thing that happens with collections is like you start off and you're like, we want to, like, I think when we did this Ultimate Collection, we wanted to do 60 games. Mm-hmm. And that was like, okay, let's go after this. And the 20 games that fell off the list are games that we couldn't get licensing sorted out for. Mm-hmm. So Streets of Rage 2 was one of those games that was very challenging to license because the music was very different. Yeah. Uh, it was owned by somebody. I think you had to license it from the original composer. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's all these things that go into into these games that are makes it challenging to just do a back catalog collection. So when that thing was like originally going to be 60 games, uh, I don't think we had the Altered Beast arcade game or Zaxxon and all stuff in. So when that thing got reduced, we, re-diver- we diverted those funds to putting those extra things in. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, this is a weird aside, but I would uh, when I like, got the game, I think it launched at $30. It really wasn't expensive. And uh, I remember just booting it up and then listening to the menu music, that intro menu music where the games are like the, the game carts are like flying around the screen yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, did, did you guys have someone in house do that? Where did that music we did, come from? We did. I, if if I remember correctly, that was all um, in house. You know, the rendering and the movie and all that stuff was all done in house. Oh, and uh, I think I think Bob Baffy may have done the menu music. If I I, I got to double check, but I think it was Bob. Ba- Bob Baffy did most of the music and audio f- for all those collections, and um, he did a great job. And he was able to distill the essence of of the system and the games and, and create something that you felt like it belonged to it. And uh, yeah, I believe Bob Baffy probably did that one too. It's a cool collection. I mean, I I tried getting into Fantasy Star. I don't. I, just th- <laughs> I think it's just hard to play a Genesis RPG, you know, all these years later. But 
Um, if you, you know, miss those games, like those are a little bit hard to come by these days on carts. So that's uh, going to be the best way to, to play a lot of that. Um, I know one issue that you guys ran into, or I don't remember if it's on there or not, is uh, the lock on technology with, yeah. with Sonic and Knuckles and like Sonic 3 and stuff like that. Is that, was that just kind of like a, like a programming issue? Like, so, uh, you know, this is, this is where memory kind of falls because we had yeah. that in. And if it's not in that game, it might be unlockable. It might, there might be some oh, okay. sort of, there should be support in there for it. Um, it's not very challenging to do that because the game itself, the way the lock-on cart worked mm-hmm. is you could, when you locked a cartridge in, you put that into a system, it just thought of it as a new cartridge because it was just basically intercepting the other cartridge and sending the data through. And when, that, when the Genesis would read it, it just thought it was a new cartridge. And so if you, you could dump those games, if I recall correctly, um, from, and, and when we're doing the ROM slurping, there's another thing we have to do when we do these collections is you just don't go to the internet and download a ROM. <laughs> yeah. um, there's, there's a lot of legal issues with that, uh, not because it's like piracy, but because you don't know who's modified that ROM. Mm-hmm. Um, there could be stuff removed or added and whatever in the text and stuff. So we, when we did the Sega collection, the Capcom collection, and the arcade collections, we go out and we find those arcade boards and we use I call them logic probes because it's Tron, but we basically slurp the data off those chipsets and make sure that we're using real data from the real hardware. And it's not only just get one, we have to get two of everything because you don't know if you have bit rot. So you have to ah. go through and just like confirm that this is a you know solid ROM. So Capcom and Sega would send us stuff, but the Sega collection with all those games, especially when we were at 60, we had to go out and buy them all. Uh, games that I didn't own already, but I ended up getting all these games and two of them to make sure that we were getting the, the accurate read off. So they didn't but, even like drop off a box of carts. You had to go out and like no, because they stuff didn't have eBay? any. They didn't have any, so they were what? they were asking us if we knew where we could get them, and so they reimbursed <laughs> on, us for them. Okay, but they just didn't have them. They had like maybe two or three games, but that that was about it. And I'm sure somebody in Sega had them, but like they just were like, just go find them. And so uh, that's that's always the side benefit too, because like a lot of times after these projects are done, it's like, what do we do with all these games? And it's like, well, <laughs> just, they're just go, going go to my some, basement. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Good call. But um, Sonic and Knuckles, that was that was pretty much in there because the emulator would just address it as if it was a, nor- a normal game, and it played fine. But I think um, if it's removed from there, it was only because of possibly licensing issues or mm. saving it for if they're going to do something else uh, later. The uh, other things uh, that I just wanted to ask you, just in terms of like emulating uh, in general, I know you left um, a, a couple notes on there uh, as well. The rights issues thing being the the biggest because now there's games that people want to bring back. The, the prime example I remember in the uh, early years of the 360 was GoldenEye. People wanted to bring back GoldenEye, yeah. but the rights are split up between so many different people. It's been bought and sold. The the movie rights. Uh, you know, we're all over the place and you have to get the the music, you have to get the likeness and all that stuff into one package. And they just could not, like a video leaked out, like it looked like something was up and running, but um, the, the package couldn't come together. So uh, like, have you run into any of that kind of stuff in the past? And what's your experience with just having to get uh, all that together? All the time. All the time. This was like a lot of the reasons why people would come to us to do this stuff is because we've gone through this so many times. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's games that have been entirely completed. They're great. They're ready to go, and they cannot resolve the rights issues because it, this this happens where um, you'll get three parties together: the person who owns the movie rights, and and the, the who owns the game code from the original, and who's publishing it now, and they all agree and letter like a letter of intent and everything like that. 
and then you go into production and it doesn't take long to sometimes do these ports and stuff. It'll take like six to eight months and it's just assumed everything's going to get resolved. And then next thing you know, you're getting ready to put this out the door and they all come to a disagreement and it's been through QA, it's ready to ship and then it just dies on the vine. That happens so often. And a lot of these games that we thought would never come out who's over at Code Mystics, who just did the Killer Instinct arcade emulation for the Ultimate Collection download on Xbox One. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're dying to play Killer Instinct, arcade perfect, get the, uh, the full Ultra Collection for Xbox One downloadable, and you'll get the entire arcade game and the hard drive emulation and everything. The guy's a genius with this stuff. Um, but he was also a genius with trying to get these different parties to talk to one another. And so I learned a lot from him on how to get like Disney to play nice with Midway so that we could do stuff like Tron or um, getting things like uh, the Star Wars arcade games sorted out so factor five which we weren't involved in this one but like factor five was was able to get star wars the arcade game sorted out so they could put that out for uh, a lucas arts mm-hmm. uh, project and stuff like that that stuff is so challenging like moon patrol you'll probably never see in a collection again mm. because the rights are so tied up and construed that it's not worth it um but it's a great arcade game and burger time also just like the rights have bounced around so much that now who owns it they did the Burger Time World Tour, and we're going to talk about this later, but that game just got pulled off of uh, consoles. Yeah. It's, it's been expired. And how are you going to play even that game? Um, so, rights ends up being the biggest thing. A lot of it's with likenesses, because actors had a specific contract. A lot of it's tied up because of music. A lot of times, when you're putting a project together, you don't want to pay for the music, so you just tell them they own the rights, and you just get it exclusive for that one instance of the game. But then in the future, if you have to reissue it, you don't own those rights. Um, And then likenesses are not just actors, but also... Things like uh, the Gundam robots that you know from the series Gundam, um, they are in sidearms, and so we had to replace those robots in sidearms for the Capcom collection Man. with new art so that they wouldn't uh, infringe on those rights. Uh, and it was killing us to do that because we love Arcade Perfect, and to do that, we, we're like pretty much on the fence of why let's just take the game out. Like mm-hmm. if we can't emulate it perfectly people are gonna be pissed off but i think in the collection if i recall correctly we even noted why that changed and we explained it in the collection but it's those kind of things that that kill these things off and we've been fortunate to get through a lot of them we were able to put moon patrol out at one point and that was the only time we're able to get moon patrol out and it's i don't think it's going to happen again well it's really scary because a couple years ago there was things like uh you know midway being broken up and you're not going to see another midway collection because those games are in a bunch of different rights holders now it's true like spy hunter and all these things are all split up and it sounds like um we we averted a crisis with atari because literally a couple months ago it looked like atari was going to sell off all their individual ip so centipede and millipede was going to go one direction while missile command went another direction and um you know crazy castles went another or crystal castles went another direction mm-hmm. if that would have happened that would have been kind of the end of an era because that's when you see that happen that's what happened with burger time and stuff these these things just uh it, it becomes more and more challenging to do a collection this might be the 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 best time since we just mentioned it to to go into this we talked about this before, but it's it's something that has been continued to uh, come up on in the news and on, on podcasts, and it's been stuff that's kind of in my mind. But um, you know, with digital distribution being a, a big part of what's going on with indies, and uh, things are just kind of leaning that way. We got consoles with 500 gigabyte hard drives in them like there's they're making these consoles to be built for just downloading these games um you know i wanted to ask you as a developer uh 
who's going to be responsible per, for preserving this stuff? Because uh, I'm going to get a an indie game, like whether it's, let's just say Hotline Miami. I buy a Hotline Miami, I download that, and I, I love it. But in 25 years, I want to play Hotline Miami, and my PlayStation Vita doesn't work, and maybe Steam disappears. Uh, what you know? What am I going to be able to do? Is there going to be a way to to get that game? So I just wanted to ask you, in terms of being a developer, uh, you know, what are your concerns, and uh, you know, what are you thinking about in terms of preserving this stuff? Well, looking at um, right now, like the the partners we work with and the state of uh, digital games, when those games ship, more often than not, they are not preserved anywhere. In fact, we have a lot of trouble when we need to go and update a game, like we worked on Yu-Gi-Oh! and and these things. And thankfully, in those situations, uh, the developer had the last revision of the source code. More often than not, they don't know where the source code is. They find some version that isn't the final version. So uh, you might be a month behind, and all these fixes that went into it to make that final version are lost. Um, All these things happen all the time. There is no industry standard to when you're done with a game, what do you do with it? And this is something that's been haunting me for a little while because you know how I've been involved a lot in software preservation and Mm -hmm. um, working with people like the Smithsonian and all this stuff. And we went out, Frank Cifaldi, who's, I take his lead on this stuff all the time. I work with him here, um, who's Lost Levels we've talked about before. He he set up an appointment at the Library of Congress when we were out there for the opening of the Smithsonian exhibit. And we went over there and we had really great conversations, spent the whole day with those guys. And we were convinced that there should be some sort of program or some sort of awareness to publish- publishers that when they're done with a game, they should send a copy of their final source revision to the Library of Congress where it will be preserved and then accessible to that same group if they need to re- tap it again. Because they have, all the, they have all the facilities, the technology, and everything to preserve this stuff, but nobody knows about it. And uh, we're trying to come up with a way right now to get this out to everybody because uh, the Library of Congress is responsible for a lot of these Blu-ray remasters you see in HD because they have the original negatives to so many films. They have the original negative to Frankenstein from Universal. Wow. And um, when they do a Blu-ray remaster, they go to the Library of Congress and get that mm-hmm. and remaster it. In the case of Frankenstein, they got that. And then they also saw that the Library of Congress had the second copy made from the negative. And it turns out that the second copy is better quality than the negative because the negative had been used so often mm-hmm. to like remaster that the, the second copy made from it is higher quality, and they were able to use that. But software, what they do have at the Library of Congress is in the 80s, Nintendo, Sega, and all these guys, whenever they would copyright something, they would send a copy of the game to the copyright office. The copyright office would Ziploc it and put it in an archive. When the Library of Congress decided that software is something they should be preserving, um, for, for, for the world and for next generations, they tapped the, the copyright office to send them all the software they had, which was a, quite a bit of software, but not that much, but enough, because what would happen is people would send to the copyright office these games, and they would sit in the office. People who work in the copyright office are like, oh, I've got a Nintendo, or I've got a whatever, and they would like snag it, right, or things would just disappear. But now we need to kind of create a pipeline for people to understand from like Electronic Arts and Activision, these guys, that when a game is done, it's safe and it's preserved and it's not available to any just anybody in the public. It's going to be something that's like under their um, jurisdiction. So if EA were to send all this source code to the Library of Congress, only EA can see that source code until a predetermined time that EA has said that that source code could be made public, which would be you know end of copyrights or whatever. And so that's a resource that everybody has for free 
that can be used to do this. And it's, it's, it's something that I'm, I'm really passionate about because there's games I've worked on that I cannot get again, like War of the Worlds. Um, when we put that game out there, like it, you know, it, it got polarizing reviews or whatever, but it's, it was a project that I was, I was at the, in the end, I was pretty proud of. It got delisted because Paramount Interactive went away as an entity. So the mm-hmm. business entity went away and the game was delisted because there's, where do you send the check when somebody buys the game? Um, and that's not been sorted out. But then also, I'm not sure if Microsoft could just turn it back on or whatever. And then I also don't know where the last revision source code is. We had a source server here, and I, who am sitting here preaching it to everybody else, am now in this position where I'm like, did we not save our own game? <laughs> and wow. where is this thing? So we think we found it, thankfully. But it's, it's a case where if I knew at the time that I could have just sent it off to the Library of Congress, it would have been just a phone call later saying, like, can I get that? Um, last repo that I sent uh, because we're going to do something else with it. And so I think that's a, a valid way to go. But also we are still up against everybody just throwing everything away or just moving on to the next project, not wanting to think about the previous game. Um, and that that's challenging. Tangibles are, are very important. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it's maintaining, like we're seeing games that um, are being saved because there was a tangible version of the game left. Like uh, BioForce Ape for NES was a game that if the cartridge that was burned didn't exist, we wouldn't see it now because the tapes would be unreadable or mm-hmm. thrown out, whatever as far as the source code goes. So digital, I, I'm worried about it. The best chance we have right now, for me, like War of the Worlds, uh, I was able to find a pirated version of War of the Worlds for XBLA. Um, it, in a sick twist of irony, it may be the pirate's who are the, the best way of preserving games at the moment because there's games that have been lost or removed from services like XBLA and PSN mm-hmm. that they somehow managed to figure out how to rip from those sites. And while they shouldn't be distributing them, the fact that they did that is more than what the publisher has done. Yeah, that's, again, as someone that, that really enjoys this stuff, it's kind of worrisome because I've used the example before, but... Uh, when IREM got sold, like you can't get the R-type games that they released on PSN anymore. They're just they're gone. It's that whole they're just gone. They're delisted. So, you know, some people might have them on their console, but I can I can't buy that because I didn't buy it. And I even if I want to play it, the only way I might be able to play it is like you said, you know, through the pirates, someone that ripped it off their hard drive that was on their PS3 and then yeah. download it and emulate it on your computer. Um, or somehow get that onto a hard drive exactly. that's on a modified PS3. So you're literally having to break the law to play something that uh, you'd be more than happy to to pay for. Um, I just want to give, uh, for, for people that haven't checked it out, we mentioned it last time, but uh, it's lostlevels.org. And we mentioned uh, the hard driving, uh, hard driving uh, the Tengen uh, version and Frank has a great interview or Q&A uh, with the developer of that game. So uh, go check it out and watch the YouTube video of hard driving running on an NES. <laughs> it's pretty mind-boggling. <laughs> Man, I, I think it was this past weekend. Frank was like had this crazy setup going on to, to play some games, too, on, on Twitter. I mean... That's, he is that's hard. I trust. Yeah, I trust him. Yeah, man. he he's trying to get the GBA to output to a television in perfect uh, in perfect quality, so it looks like a Super Nintendo. 
And to do that requires so many pieces of hardware. And he's starting with the Game Boy Advance player, which is probably, as he's learning now, is probably the biggest mistake. And this, but it's the only option you have mm. because he's trying to get clean lines and make it look like you're playing a Super Nintendo and have the best experience playing GBA on a television. And when you see it, it looks like, it looks like some sort of like Genesis dream frenzy because it's so many peripherals stacked into one another, like an uh, uh, upscaler to uh, you know, like a, a vertical like alignment box and all this other crazy stuff and um but it's impressive he he's the guy if you want to recreate a perfect experience from an older piece of hardware he's going to find a way to do that i thought i was nuts having the xrgb frame meister and dropping 450 dollars on an upscaler to play you know games with scan lines on (laughs) on an hdtv but uh the wiring setup almost made me feel uncomfortable uh, with what he (laughs) had going on there but uh, it's a science. <laughs> yeah, it's it, we need people like Frank and like you out there to to try this stuff and to want to be able to recreate this because uh, tube TV is something that's not going to be you know around forever too. So yeah, they are, uh, they are dying off quick. Unfortunately, um, let's uh, we'll start wrapping it up. But uh, hitting on this a little bit, uh, D Perrin uh, wanted to ask. Uh, what do you feel is your greatest accomplishment uh, when you've had to port a game? For instance, uh, was it overcoming a technical limitation or successful uh, pitching or successfully pitching a game port idea to a publisher? Is there any specific game that comes to mind? Well, you know what? Um, listening to that question, the the thing that I was really proud of was um, when we pitched the Capcom collection to Capcom. And we had people from the home office from Japan out. And it was a very important meeting. And when we started to have this discussion about doing that collection, it was only after they had failed several times to make their game, produce authentic recreations of Final Fight. Um, And they had the guy who, one of the guys who worked on the original Final Fight came out and wanted to authenticate. uh, One, he was supposed to come out and just understand our process and then give thumbs up, thumbs down if we could do it or not. And so knowing they were all coming out and it was going to be an important meeting, we just went ahead and put every effort into making Final Fight just run on an Xbox. And this guy, Dan Filner, was leading that up. He was amazing. We work with him right now. Um, he just he just one day said, check it out. And we looked at it. And there's we had a list of things that they were going to ask how we would over overcome. And he had already done them. And we're playing the game, and it was we're looking at the arcade version. We had the board, and we're looking at the the Xbox version. We're like, this is great. So they came in, not even knowing we're going to have a version of the game fully up and running. And so we're talking about stuff. We're telling them what we would do and all stuff. And finally, at one point, I was just like, well, how about we show you? And so we literally turned on the Xbox, gave him a controller, and the guy who who's the most critical, he grabs the controller and he just started playing, played through the entire game. And afterwards, because he we had a translator there, but he didn't even use the translator, he just looked at us and gave a thumbs up. And we're like, yes, we've got the we've got it. All we needed was that thumbs up and we got the whole collection. And so that was awesome. And then the other one that unfortunately didn't come out was an awesome thing where we uh, pitched the Nintendo arcade virtual console. And I may have talked about this before, but we no. had worked with Nintendo and they had virtual console for all their other stuff. They wanted to launch an arcade channel. Mm-hmm. And so we had done a demonstration. We brought it to GDC. And what we had done is, and I still have this somewhere, you'd load up the, you go to the virtual console arcade slice on, on the Wii, with the original Wii, and you'd be presented with these games. We had Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., Donkey Kong 3, and Mario Brothers. 
And what was really cool about it was you start playing the game, and if you pause the game, there was an option to transfer to your DS. So you'd open your DS, and you know how to download play? It would download the arcade game and exactly where you were and transfer the game to the DS so you can go on the road with it and play it. And you could transfer it back to the Wii. So the whole thing was you have save anywhere at any time, and then you also get to save it to your DS and continue playing it and then bring it back and then save it. And you, know, you had it kind of traversing these systems. So we brought that to GDC, and we showed it to them. And it was awesome because they got really excited, and they kept bringing people in from other meetings, and they wanted to show it off. And then it eclipsed into a really late-night call one time where it was a producer in Japan called us up at like, I don't know, it was like 2 or 3 in the morning. And they were translating for uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, who was on the other end of the phone, wanting to know if we could emulate the Japanese version and what it would take to do it. And we're just like, we're excited because like, we already had it running. We're like, we have it right now and you can check it out. So that thing went really far. Um, but unfortunately, it was like the licensing issue stuff and everything else. There were all these hurdles they had to do to, in order to get the Donkey Kong arcade game uh, republished. And so that unfortunately came to an end, but uh, Nintendo was very happy with it otherwise, and um, it's a shame it couldn't happen. And they're still having trouble, I think, getting that off the ground. My head is in my hands right now because this <laughs> is like this is the stuff that Nintendo needs to be doing. Like they need to leverage this. Stuff. Like I, mean, I, I have some vague memories of hearing about this, or maybe it was just like people talking about like, oh, this would be a great idea of something to do. Um, because Donkey Kong on the on the NES, it's okay, but it's yep. not it's not the arcade game. And to be able to take that with you wherever you went, like it was ha- awesome, perfect <sighs> emulation too. Because we there was up until now, now they finally figured out like in Mame and all stuff. But like that sound chip and emulating that distinct distinct like varying pitch of his run and everything mm-hmm. wasn't at the time wasn't emulated. So that's what won us a lot of accolades from Nintendo because we recreated the game perfectly. And not only that, you could bring it on the road, but it also was like a high score challenge. You could challenge people to your high score. Oh, come so on. This bef- <laughs> so this is all before King of Kong though. So it was like it was it's like when King of Kong came out, I'm like, God, if the thing was just out, that would be so huge because everybody in the world would be trying to get the highest score on Donkey Kong right now. And we could have tied it all in, but uh, it's one of those things that got away. Well, what, whatever they say, they say, uh, you know, that when Nintendo's down, this is like they're kind of down a little bit right now. This is when they, they bring it. So yeah. uh, I'm hoping they can just just fire everything, fire all rockets, all photon torpedoes and photon torpedoes, and, and let's make this stuff happen. Like this is oh, this is just – this is like <laughs> just – I am I geek out for this stuff too because I love being able to – I do stupid stuff like play – you know, buy two copies of a game and play it on my PlayStation 3 and then put it on my Vita when I go someplace because I just, I love always having my games with me. Um, It's, Mike, you break my heart so much (laughs) when you come on this show. And this is, this is, I I think we're going to have to just change the name of these episodes to like history, like video game history with Mike Micah (laughs) and all the things that could have been. Oh, that would just make us all depressed. (laughs) It's... Nintendo, make it happen. I, we we kind of joke all the time uh, that we have people from uh, Nintendo listening to the the podcast. I don't think they are, but actually, no. We do have uh, one person that works at Treehouse that does listen and sub- like follows the show. So um, maybe they can say what's up. They just to- send a send a link around and email to everybody. Like- yeah. Oh. <laughs> well you know i i, I got even a 3d calls. classic of donkey kong oh, because man. they're doing that stuff without like i where's first off where's outrun 
Come on, bring yep. it. Hurry up. Get it over here to the United States because I want to play that. And I only own a 2DS right now, but I will go out to the store and repurchase a 3DS. Hopefully there's a new one coming at uh, E3 and then I'll go out and get that. But like the 3D, uh, doing a 3D classic of Donkey Kong, do you think, like, think about how cool it would be to have depth in that game? All right, so there's there's even some cooler stuff like that that was going on back there that you didn't that didn't come out. Um, this was actually technology developed by somebody I know who works at Sony, and he he brought it to us and just said like make something with this because we we can't do it at Sony and everything like that. And what they had done that was amazing to me was they created this Atari emulator that emulator Atari was perfectly, but you could assign a height value to every color in the palette. So imagine like. You have adventure, and you say the color yellow is 100 pixels high. And so the, the, the main character in the walls are now 100 pixels high. You could then tilt the camera any angle you want, and these things would project out of the, out of the surface. Mm-hmm. So you could make a game 3D. So one of the things they did is they took Grand Prix, which is this racing game. It's a profile racing game. Mm-hmm. And it's just a top-down racing left-to-right game. They assigned these height values to all the different gradients of colors. And when you turn the camera behind the car, it was a, it was a third-person car racing game into the screen that looked amazing. And it's emulating what? the Atari and making that happen. So Man. so we took that general idea and we applied it to some of the arcade games we were doing, and it looked mm-hmm. amazing. So we had, um, I'm trying to remember what it was, uh, which one was it? It was, uh, I'm forgetting which one it was. We had one of the classic arcade games. It may have been Robotron. It was Robotron. And oh, com- we assigned oh, these values that's... to it. And so everything popped from the screen. And when things yeah. exploded, when they exploded outward, we had them not only explode out, but they would go up and away. And also, so there was like these 3D particles and all stuff. And it's emulating Robotron. It was just taking the visual and applying this sort of shader trick and this extra little layer of things to make everything 3D. And you were playing this real classic old arcade game now in full 3D, and it looked amazing. That was Donkey Kong could be done. Like you just say purple, which is the girders, would mm-hmm. now pop out X amount, and then the colors for Donkey Kong come out so far. And you would literally have this 3D Donkey Kong. That's the original arcade graphics. Somebody out there listening, do that too, because that's not an idea I own, and it would be great to see it finally. <laughs> okay. I, I don't even know what to say. Like this is <laughs> – it is – <laughs> alternate universe of video games like the this know. is this is like the sliders episode of back in my play where i'm just like seeing into all these different parallel worlds <laughs> where things could have been different but all right um well i i quickly want to mention we did get some some interesting stuff on twitter i just want to say i you know i said what what are your favorite ports out there to to some of the people on back in my play and uh a couple of them uh, people were saying, uh, Neil said, uh, Takara's Genesis port of the Neo Geo games. I, were those good? You know, um, I was spoiled with the Neo Geo hardware, so I didn't yeah. really like the Genesis <laughs> ports. Uh, but on the same token, like if you had no access to the Neo Geo hardware, I, I think they were good. I, like the fighting, I, friends I know they brought the fighting games, yeah. Yeah, I have friends who swear by the Takara ports. That it's, you know, it, was, it was all great, but again... I was every weekend hanging out with a buddy of mine playing Samurai Showdown on the real thing, and mm-hmm. I just didn't have the heart to to try to get a Genesis port up and running and play with my friends. Jekonomics uh, said, uh, I like TMNT 2, the arcade game on the NES, because the soundtrack got ported to chiptunes, and yeah. it was awesome. Also, extra stages, great point. Great that, point. Is, that, that says it all right there. That chiptune version was awesome. I, I, still, I can hear it in my head right now. <laughs> Konami in general, every game, yeah. every... Every song and every Konami game was just great. Um, 
See, Patrick said, I recently bought Resident Evil 4 HD on Steam and I had a blast. Easily one of my favorite games ever. That's also cool. People doing HD uh, versions of older games. Are there any games that are like from the Xbox PS2 era that you would uh, think would use uh, or do well with an HD treatment? Is there any off the top yeah. of your head? I mean, this is one that kind of goes into uh, a question we had from earlier, but um, I really wanted... I, I, I may be in the minority, but I wanted that Halo remake to be more faithful to the original Halo, mm. uh, particularly in the multiplayer side, because I'm a yeah. huge... And you know what? I know Frank O'Connor, who's over... He, he heads up a lot of the 343 industry stuff right now, and he hates it when I say this, but Blood Gulch <laughs> is one of my favorite maps. Oh, yeah. And we used to play that. That was the only map we would ever play, and they have yet to get Blood Gulch right in a modern Halo. And when they did the remake of Halo, I'm like, thank God they're going to have you know proper Blood Gulch. And they didn't. They... They did not produce it the way it was before because they used a new engine to do the multiplayer. It was the Halo so you're not, 4 engine, right? The yeah, things, yeah, exactly. And um, so I have yet to get the Blood Gulch I want, and that's the HD version. If they just shipped a Blood Gulch-only package, <laughs> I'd be happy. That would be – you know, I would stop pursuing Rage Wars and say I'm done. This is all I needed and <laughs> be, be set. Well, we – you know, there's just rumors out there right now, but people are saying it's going to be the 10th anniversary of Halo 2. Uh, so we might get a Halo 2 anniversary like they did with Halo 1 and, uh, you know, maybe they'll use the, the Halo 2 engine at least for, for the multiplayer. But you can still – like when – before Xbox Live, when we had Halo at my house, I would have a couple guys over and we'd use the tunneling services to yeah. play with people online and it worked pretty well. Like to just fake the well. system link. Because remember, like Halo was originally going to be a Mac and PC game, and mm-hmm. I think they had online support just kind of sitting there. And when they switched to Xbox, they, I don't think they changed much of that. So when they when you see those evolutions and stuff going on there, it was just ready to go. And they just didn't test it or whatever because of timing. So there's Kudos to Bungie for having like really solid tech. Uh, Addison says, uh, Punch-Out! It was one of my favorite arcade games of all time, and the NES game is a great version. This is going along with the, seems to be like a constant debate on the Player One podcast where they're debating between Punch-Out! Arcade, Punch-Out! NES, Super Punch-Out! And uh, I just got a copy, like the last copy at my local Target of Punch-Out! on the Wii. Um, because I don't think uh, they're pressing any more of those discs, so buy that game if you can. Uh, so Punch Out, great series, and that might be my favorite too. Probably the NES version. Yeah, I, you know the NES version was so different from the arcade version, yet they had that same DNA. Yeah. Um, I played the arcade version to death, and I love that the Goldbergs. If anybody's watching that show, featured Punch Out on like two episodes back, and it's it's kind of it talks about the addiction of Punch Out for for. Uh, um, the older brother Barry in the series. I, I was blown away by their, them focusing on that game in, in the episode. But the the latest version of Punch Out for Wii, really good. And Brian Davis, I think, and the yeah. guys out there, uh, they they did a fantastic job. And I, I next level on those guys, like hands down, one of the better studios out there. And I was I was really happy to see them take such care with Punch Out for the Wii because that's a game that people get wrong all the time. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of like Punch Out ripoffs and people think they're making a Punch Out game. They go out there and they try to do a Punch Out game and it just falls so short. Uh, next level delivered and that's, that's a really fun one. Yeah, speaking of uh, Brian, he's going to be coming on soon to talk about Castlevania Symphony of the Night. 
but he is going to be delayed a little bit uh, because of a newborn. So, Brian, congratulations on the congratulations, Brian. Keep that. Uh, <laughs> he's got that PlayStation Vita next to him to, to continue yep. playing Symphony of the Night uh, leading up to this. But um, yeah, that. It, everything that they've done really at Next Level has been really good. That in Luigi's Mansion uh, was yep. fantastic. So, Oh, absolutely. You know what? I love those guys because they're just as passionate about their source material and what they yeah. work on as as like the best people out there. And um, I always look forward to their games. Not to be sitting here pimping them or whatever, but no, yeah. wow, they are, they're very talented. Yeah, and hopefully, uh, like I said, Brian will be on soon and we'll be talking Metroidvania-type stuff. Uh, yes. and all, the, all that cool th- uh, stuff. Um, so I forgot to mention uh, one of the most important pieces of news that has come out in the last couple of weeks, and it was really cool watching this on Twitter. But Mike, you were uh, doing a little bit of traveling and doing some digging. What did you find? <laughs> so I um, I was involved in the E.T. Dig, which was the documentary that is basically telling the story of Atari burying many cartridges in New Mexico, the, the big legend and all that stuff. But um, part of this was I got a call a long time ago from uh, Zach Penn and the group that's in Fuel and these guys who have been putting on or putting together this documentary. And uh, I, I, I think as they're trying to tell me what they're doing, I just kept saying yes, yes, yes the whole time because this is something that since I was a kid, I, I dreamed of like someday going and trying to find the buried stash of Atari games. Because when I read that a long time, I think it was Joystick Magazine, it, in my mind as, as a little kid, I'm sitting there thinking like, why would Atari bury, and you know, back then it sounded like it was millions of cartridges in the middle of a desert. And it just sounded like a big joke or it was some you know, big rumor. Uh, but it went, flash forward to when I was at Next Generation Game Magazine, uh, the story came up in there and I did a little bit of investigating I was at the magazine. It's, it started to feel and sound like it was entirely true. And um, I started to meet people who worked at Atari over the years and all stuff. And I kind of pieced together that, yeah, this actually did happen. There's a lot of reasons why it happened. But nobody really could remember. They knew where it was, but they couldn't remember exactly where it was. And so what this crew did, and it's phenomenal, and Zach, who's an awesome uh, guy heading this up, they managed to find everything you needed to know about where it was, who did what. And I was just very fortunate to participate in it. And even better was I was able to um, hook up with a a good friend of mine, Ernie Klein, who wrote Ready Player One. And so we showed up uh, wearing our Elliot red sweatshirts (laughs) and participated in the digging of the the site. And um, we have many an adventure to tell, and a lot of it's meant for the camera. So... uh, it was exciting. I had the time of my life. It, it kind of brought closure to a big arc of my kind of gamer fandom. And uh, to be on site when they pulled those games out and to see what they found was, it was amazing. And to be there with so many people I had met over the years and like haven't talked to for a while and all stuff. And to see it was like, to me, it was like close encounters. There were all these people who like over the years are sitting there, you know, drawing in their mashed potatoes with their fingers, like little ET cartridges or whatever. They knew that they were going to all converge on this one spot. So we met the kids who stole games from the, the dig, uh, from the, the, from the site when they were younger who are now working for the city. We met, uh, the guy who made the executive order. Like, uh, it was almost like, you know, Phantom Menace that order number, whatever to <laughs> bury the games, uh, because there was nothing else they could do with them. And all these people just came to one spot. Howard Scott Warshaw, who I'm a huge fan of, who made ET Yard's revenge and stuff. He was on site. It was a great reunion. There was people who had not seen each other since they left Atari 
back when that all happened and uh, the camaraderie and the the fellowship and everything that was all there. It sounds like it's all highfalutin the way I'm saying it, but it was mind-boggling and unforgettable, and I, I can't wait for people to see that documentary. Uh, it, it is one of the it is one of the most interesting stories in the history of games, just because. I think if you owned an Atari 2600, you owned E.T., and to think that they still had, like, 3 million extra copies, still, uh, just amazing. Maybe a little bit of a, a blunder when it came to production and just estimates. And when you see the documentary, you're going to be totally enlightened as to what really is, is there in that burial site. Oh, cool, because, yeah, we only saw a couple of pictures. You guys, uh, I mean, I know Chris Kohler, I was following him. He posted a couple things, and... Uh, I can't wait to to check out the rest of it because it is a story that should be told because it is a vital part of uh, the ups and downs of the video game world. And if anything, you could see Ernie driving around the middle of a desert in a DeLorean and uh, <laughs> in the middle of a landfill, more or less. And uh, the, you know, it was also a pretty awesome about it. What made it really epic was here are all these people who came for this one thing and wanted to see this through. And also it just felt very like epic because by midday there were like 70 mile per hour winds it was a sandstorm we still hadn't found anything yet we're doubting if we're in the right spot and just to have it all come together the way it did it's i if it if it's even a tenth as epic as it was to be there i can't wait to see what this documentary looks like i think that is where we're gonna cap it this time because we're coming at like an hour and 30 minutes for this one <laughs> um now i feel like we can go forever but uh you know Mike has work to do. He's got iDarb, uh, you know, versions coming out, still working on that game, getting it ready for uh, E3, which is like, what, four weeks away now? You're scaring me. Yes. What? That's probably, it's coming up quick. And we've got a long list of things to do. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you get back to it. The audience out there, you have a couple things that you should be doing. First off, like I said, lostlevels.org. You can check that out. Um, you can still go to, is it still idarb.com to check out the character creator? It is. Yep, you can go there. Perfect. And we'll be posting some new news and everything like that up there soon too. So it's going to change here pretty quick. Awesome. And uh, don't forget, you can support the show by going to iTunes, submit a review on there. Uh, I am going to be doing another run of t-shirts probably this weekend. So uh, people started seeing pictures of the of the shirts like on Twitter and stuff like that. And just as we were recording, I saw uh, the guys at 8-4 just got their shirts today. So uh, I got mine. Be, it's awesome. <laughs> be, yeah. Everyone, so this is, this is kind of like my, my evil plans just to make sure <laughs> – Everybody is wearing back in my play shirts and just you know, one thing after another. It will, uh, well, it will if you happen. See pictures of me at E3, you'll probably see me wearing it. So perfect. It um, so yeah, you can you can check those out. We're going to be doing some more Teespring, and they usually are like sixteen dollars. So they're not. Uh, I'm not making money off them. I just want you guys to get some some cool back in my play T-shirts and sneak peek. Next shirt is going to be a Japanese version. It's going to have a Famicom. It's going to have a PC Engine nice. and a Super Famicom on it, or a Mega Drive. I'm, I'm still I'm still trying to figure that out. I don't know because I I feel like <laughs> the Super Famicom just is just a sexy piece of hardware, it and is. Uh, it it should be on a. Uh, a t-shirt but mike i i know I, I keep saying it but i cannot thank you enough for for coming on this is 
this is, I'm going to say it right now. This is the favorite episode I've ever done. Like this is just, <laughs> it's, it's so it's up and down. Like there's just, uh, you know, I'm laughing and then I'm feeling depressed because of all this stuff I could have, <laughs> you know, I should be playing, but, um, yeah, thank you so much. And, um, every time I can, uh, I'm going to tap you to, to get on the show and, uh, hopefully we'll be, uh, talking soon, maybe after E3, I'll let you get back to work and uh, make sure oh, you're yeah, good for yeah. that. But, uh, we'll definitely have to have you on again. Definitely. And you know what, like, it would be pretty amazing if, uh, if I can get my schedule sorted out, it'd be awesome to do a, a quick show from E3. Uh, that would be pretty exciting. You, you let me know. I do the weird thing, like taking a couple days off for E3 every year because I'm still, <laughs> I still like, all right, this is my vacation time because I need to see these press conferences live. I don't want to read about it on Twitter. So, um, yeah, let's, we'll see if we can set that up, but all right, uh, let's talk about that for sure. Cause, uh, I, I will carve out that time. Awesome, man. I can, again, thank you everyone out there for listening, subscribing. Make sure you're telling your friends about the show if they like old games. And even if they like new ones, make sure you're educating them on the classics. Uh, thank you so much again, and we will catch you next time. Take care.